Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. In a previous episode within our series on American identities, we featured essayist Eula Biss, who had an interesting perspective to share. She said that if you look closely enough at really anything in this country, you come up against the nation's history of slavery and colonization. As a historian here at Washington University in St. Louis, Assistant Professor Shawande Mustakim confronts that history head-on in her research and teaching. Mustakim's forthcoming book is titled Routes of Terror, Gender, Health, and Power in the 18th Century Middle Passage. When she first sent me some materials in preparation for this podcast, Mustakim warned me that it wasn't exactly bedtime reading, and she recognizes that this chapter of history can be difficult to discuss. But that doesn't mean it isn't worthy of study and serious conversation. If anything, the fact that it's so difficult makes it especially important. Here's Dr. Mustakim to explain. This is central to American history, but yet it's been so marginalized and sidelined because it's so gruesome, because it represents sort of that worst in human interaction. I mean, some people want to leave it at baggage. You know, they want to see it as a stain in American history, but it's foundational. Perhaps because this history has been so sidelined, Mustakim was determined to tell the story. When I was a graduate student, I was just hell-bent on, no one is going to tell me there's no history here. I'm not buying that there are no documents. And so even as a broke and poor graduate student, I worked it out, and I went to 25 archives, which is extremely unusual for a graduate student. These archives were located all over the world, in Jamaica, in Liverpool, the U.S., and she went to each place with the same attitude. I just wouldn't let people tell me no, because there were a lot of people that pretty much said, no, we don't have anything on that history. And I was like, well, no, no, no. You know, unless I'm just not allowed, you know, as a graduate student, let me go look and see. It's not about even discovering any sort of new documents. It's about reading these documents with a different lens and a different gaze that can produce new questions. These new questions are meant to challenge presumptions about the slave experience. Too often, people want to leave this history behind with some sort of acknowledgement that slaves had it bad, that slave ships were dangerous and dehumanizing, and that's all we need to know. But according to Mustakim, by engaging in this type of thinking, people may be making generalizations without even really realizing it. Whenever we think about the slave trade, almost without our own realization of what we're doing, we're perpetuating this idea of a general understanding of the slaves. Frequently, this general understanding of enslaved people focuses on black men. And not just any black men, young, strong men that would bring in a profit. Even when I've done presentations and stuff, people have said, I didn't realize it, I forgot black women were on slave ships. And then when you broaden it out, children and elderly people. So it's oftentimes left at this male-dominated enterprise, which it is, but we also really come to conclude about everything on the slave trade based upon the bodies of black men. To challenge this limited view, Mustakim focuses in part on the gendered experience. What was the world of a slave ship like for women? Because women were captured and transported as slaves. Some were married, some were single, some were pregnant. There was no universal experience of the Middle Passage. 
And in her research, Mustakim came across one woman's story in particular. One of the first things um, with this story in particular, it, it surprises a lot of people that it ended up being just a side project. I took it out of the original manuscript and said, oh, I'll do something with it later. And I just sort of, sort of sat on it because I questioned myself as a historian and thought, I don't have a whole lot of documents to really tell this woman's story. But for several years, I won't say I was haunted, but for several years, I always would go back to her story and just think, man, I know there's something there. Through small, indirect references in different articles and archives, Mustakim was able to piece together a tragic episode in which an enslaved woman, thought to have smallpox, was murdered rather than risking the health of the remaining slaves and the ship's crew. Here's the story. So what happens is the ship Polly docks into Western Africa. It's estimated between 1790 and 1791. The slaves purchased on this expedition included women, one of whom began showing symptoms of ill health. And about two weeks into the passage, some of the sailors began to notice pustules or the beginnings of smallpox starting to formulate. And so the ship captain decides to quarantine her and put her into a separate room. And so they give her a little bit of food and an old blanket to heave over her. And during that time, he has a meeting with the, the sailors. But I guess it's important to dismantle this illusion of a meeting because he's pretty much telling them what's going to happen. And he, yes, he did solicit their input, but at the end of the day, he's the one that really begins to execute the plan. During this meeting, the captain, James DeWolf, said she must go overboard and shall go overboard. He was determined that this one life would not threaten the rest of his human property, and thus his profit. But the sick woman was not simply tossed overboard. What's so important is that the ship captain orders a sailor to go up with him, and they tie her down to a chair. She was then blindfolded and muffled, the chair was passed to separate members of the crew and lowered into the sea. And so that then becomes almost ritualized, because it's not like she's just casually tossed over. That would almost be too easy. There's a record that the woman cried out when she first hit the water. And then the ship sailed on. After that, the, the ship continues on its passage. It docks into Cuba. and. Um, pretty much everybody else survives. Um, so some could argue that he did do it for the good of the ship. And, and basically after this, he goes on and continues to live his life. I mean, he dies the second richest man in the country in 1837. This wealthy captain, known as Captain Jim, was documented as saying that he regretted the loss of his chair more than the woman who was tied to it. This sort of callousness is hard to hear. But Mustakim wants to be clear that Captain Jim can't be written off as some sort of villain. He represents the second generation of active slave traders. There are three consecutive generations within their family alone that are involved in the slave trade. He and seven of his brothers, but at the same time, I would never want him to be seen as sort of like he's unusual because he's, he's really not. What is sort of unusual is that you have a very small paper trail that begins to show this personalized violence. Stories like this one are rare, somewhat shockingly rare. 
prior to my article, there's only been one other article that's even looked at the experience of a black female in the slave trade. So essentially there's only two. But yet we're just too comfortable in saying that, well, there are no records. And well, all they wanted was men and, and all of that. And so here it is an opportunity that you can say, even with these few documents, what can we say about the slave trade? What can we say about a black woman's experience? And these types of histories are necessary if we want to know enslaved people by more than numbers and ethnicities. If we want to reclaim something of these sidelined American identities that were first compromised by the slave trade itself. So someone can go from, you know, their whole lives they're known as, let's say, Akua or Kwabana. And the moment that they are forcibly placed into the trade, your name is stripped and you now are defined by what your enslavers define you. So for this woman, the closest that we can get to a name is a Negro wench or a middle-aged woman. And that doesn't tell us anything. That can be any particular woman. But even the brutal experience of slavery can't completely erase someone's identity. It's not even about, oh, were they able to bring drums? It's about what people remember. So oftentimes people say, oh, they were just stripped of everything. But it's like, you're not going to forget your memories. You're not going to forget what happened on that passage, nor are you going to forget that mother, that grandmother, that, that grandfather that taught you how to basket weave. You're never going to forget those sort of things. It just may be a matter of how do you maintain and how do you adapt it to these sort of new world understandings. And as the slaves themselves still had their memories, scholars can preserve the historical memory of this time by pulling together the fragments of stories that remain. In many ways, I've really tried to think about, you know, who's represented on these ships, even if it's just sort of like this boy tried to cut his throat today. Like, that's important to think about because it is, in many ways, shaping people's identity of themselves as horrific as, as it is. Though her work deals with unearthing historical memories of trauma and violence, Mustakim believes that, in order to form a truer picture of the nation, the lost stories and identities of the slave trade can and should be revealed. The Atlantic slave trade knew no national boundaries. Several nations were involved. Yet nobody really claims this history. After all, who would want it? But in the U.S., it is part of us. It's difficult to live with this history as a nation, but even more to write it and live with it and sleep with it and you know, really try to be objective and say, this is the history, we need to really think about that. It's been rewarding because I feel like stories of those whose lives have been affected or have passed on, that their stories are now being able to be told, even if in the smallest way, even if it's just a sentence, to say that this young boy died because of this disease. You know, that allows him to be remembered in a way that if I had left him to a number, you wouldn't recognize anything about what he went through. Many thanks to Shawande Mustakim for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty profile on Hold That Thought's website. We're at thought.artsi.wustl.edu. You can also find Hold That Thought on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and PRX. Be sure to come back next week for more on American identities.